This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls, and today we're talking about social networks and privacy law in our Modern Law Library series with Lori Andrews, author of I Know Who You Are and I Saw What You Did, Social Networks and the Death of Privacy. Lori, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to write this book? Well, I've been very intrigued by emerging technologies throughout my legal career. I actually took the bar exam the day the first test tube baby was born, and I did lots of work around reproductive technologies and genetic technologies. I chaired the Federal Advisory Commission to the Human Genome Project, and at that time, people were being discriminated against who were healthy, but who had a genetic makeup that indicated they might later get some uh, costly disease, and so employers were refusing to hire them. That got straightened out by a federal law, but I'm seeing the same thing happen with social networks. Uh, sometimes employers, insurers, others will make Uh, discriminatory judgments about people based on what they see on a social network page, which might not even reflect the person's capabilities. Yes, um, you actually talk about something in your chapter about data aggregators, and you say the redlining of the 1960s is now the weblining of the 21st century. Uh, Can you expand a little on that? Yes, when I started writing this book, I knew that People were having their Facebook posts used against them, you know, if they posted a a photo in which they had a drink in their hands. But I had no idea that data aggregators, companies, were collecting information about everything we do on the web. And so if I have done a Google search for a certain medical condition and then I go on to a life insurance website, I might actually be denied life insurance or given a lower amount based on the assumption that I have that disease, even if I were looking up a medical condition for a friend or for one of the mystery books I write. Um, And so increasingly we're seeing people being judged based on what an aggregated group of people would do rather than their own individual uh, propensities. Um, So... Say I write an email over Gmail saying I'm thinking of getting a divorce. Uh, Google actually scans that email in order to target ads and collect information. Or I do a Google search for an old guitar because I'm in a band. Based on that information, if I go to a credit card site, um, I will actually be offered a less good credit card because People who are about to get a divorce who play in garage rock bands actually as a group are less likely to pay off their credit card. And one big example of this was a man who had a $10,000 limit on his American Express card. He went on his honeymoon. He came back to a letter from an American Express agent saying, we've now lowered your limit to 3000 not based on anything you did, but based on the fact that you bought something at a location where a higher-than-average amount of people renege on their credit card bills. So things like a zip code that you've entered on a website or um, you know, what you've looked at may come back to haunt you in credit, in insurance, even in employment. 
I know that in my experience, you know, what I'm looking up online could be about anyone. Um, you know, my, maybe a family member has a problem or a friend. So the idea that there are companies out there that are now going to make assumptions about me and affect what ads I see, what limits I have, I mean, that's, that's very disconcerting. I would say. Yes, and a recent consumer reports poll found that over 4 million Americans liked on their Facebook page certain medical organizations you might like or donate to the American Heart Association or the Diabetes Association. That might not necessarily mean anything about your own health, but if an employer, a potential employer, looks at your Facebook page, they then see that information and may decide not to hire you based on something uh, that they never could have gotten in a, a job interview because they wouldn't have been allowed to ask about um, certain medical conditions. And so I think that in many ways what's happening on the web is that um, there's an end run being done around certain very basic rights we have, rights to prevent us from being discriminated against, rights of privacy, rights of freedom of expression. And I'm hoping to galvanize lawyers into doing more to make sure that we're protected on the, the web in ways that we are offline. There, Yes, you mentioned in one chapter of the book that uh, there are troubling precedents being set up for sexual abuse cases where social network evidence is being introduced where, you know, despite the rule that prior sexual activities should not be admitted in rape cases, MySpace pages can be looked at, and anonymous surveys that a 13-year-old took can be looked at in court. And I guess this is one of the reasons why uh, you decided to write the, the social network constitution. I see so many, you know, accepted rights being turned on their head, like the right to a fair trial. Uh, increasingly, judges are allowing into evidence things that come from social networks but don't really meet the general standards of authenticity or, or relevance, um, as you mentioned, a 13-year-old incest victim. In that case, they allowed admission of a, a, a survey that she had done, she said a friend had filled it out, about her sex life. Uh, in other cases, courts will admit things like uh, a report from the police that someone's wearing gang colors. So I looked up under the Los Angeles Police Department what's considered to be a gang color, and it's plaid, think any hipster, or all black, think New York art opening. And so we're seeing evidence being admitted, uh, particularly troublesome in custody cases. So courts have admitted evidence of a woman being dressed in provocative clothing to allow the court to take away her child and give it to her husband. And yet, what you wear doesn't have anything to do with whether you'll be a good parent or not. Uh, and ditto for men, if they have posted that they are single or that they're looking for a good time on Facebook, MySpaceMatch.com, it may come back to haunt them and they later will be thought of as having not enough credibility to warrant holding on to their child in the custody case. So I do think the solution for this is to adopt some principles under a social network constitution to protect the right to privacy, the right to fear trial, even uh, due process. And 
what I'm hoping to gain by actually putting together principles of a social network constitution is for it to be a filter through which we make a, a variety of decisions. Right now, courts are saying your right to privacy is lost on your affirmative keystroke. Even if you send an email, some courts are saying that that should not be looked at as private. Well, that's ludicrous. People assume that things they do on the Internet are, in fact, private. And so we need to bring courts back in line with our fundamental rights. Similarly, the right to free expression. Straight A high school students are being kicked out of school because they've criticized a teacher on a MySpace page. Or people are losing jobs because they've liked something that the employer didn't approve of. And so I think that freedom of expression needs to be protected, better protected online. In addition, social networks are making changes in a way that would violate due process if it were done by the government. Um, so it used to be that on Facebook, everything you posted was completely private, only shown to people that you designated. And then Facebook in 2009 changed its policy so that people's friends were made public. What happened was that there were people in the U.S. who were critical of the Iranian government, and yet their friends or family members were in Tehran. And by making the, their friends public, Facebook actually led to a situation where those friends and family members were arrested or beat up in Tehran. So, you know, what goes on in Facebook, you know, unlike Vegas, doesn't stay in Facebook, and it can have real-life consequences that are physical and financial and completely devastating. Being of Iran, your very first amendment in this Constitution is the right to connect. What made you put that at the, the top? And so we saw in the Arab Spring how social networks, Twitter, and other Internet means of communication can really seed a revolution. Um, and you would think that because we have such a strong freedom of the press here, we similarly would be protected in terms of what we post. Uh, and, you know, because what happened in Egypt, once people started posting on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook about going down to the square and protesting what was happening in the government, uh, the government actually pulled the plug on the Internet and shut down the Internet so people couldn't communicate their political beliefs. You might think, oh, that'll never happen in the United States, but there's actually uh, a pending law that was proposed by Senator Lieberman to create a director of, of cyberspace in the U.S. who could actually slow or potentially shut down the Internet the Department of Homeland Security is looking into putting digital tags on people's uh, emails and posts on the web. And by having these digital tags, you actually would be able to shut off access to the Internet by certain people or certain countries. So I think we have to be vigilant now that social networks have become such a transformative uh, new social mechanism, you know, a way to find jobs, a way to... Um, see the revolution that we don't run into situations in which we are totally cut off. You know, as, as has been proposed in Great Britain after there were riots in which people were um, sharing information over blackberries about where to loot, the government there has, is now considering proposals that would allow governmental shutdown of Internet services, and I think that's totally inappropriate. One thing that astonishes me is how much social networks have changed 
every, every area of law, you know, with employment law where some employers are asking for private passwords to see the private side of people's social network pages. But that may cause them to obtain information that, you know, really actually violates federal laws. Questions you're not allowed to ask in the interview process, such as, you know, are you are you pregnant? Are you yes. married? Employment law is being changed profoundly, and courts, the National Labor Relations Board, and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission are always are being asked to reconsider whether posting on Facebook is protected activity, uh, particularly if it's in the form of whistleblowing or conservative activity to change the workplace. But other areas of law are being changed as well. Family law, 85% of family law practitioners now say that social networks enter into their cases, and they enter into it as ways to find assets that the other spouse is hiding or even find evidence of an affair. I mean, one woman found that her husband was a bigamist because he subsequently posted a marriage photo of him marrying another woman. Child custody cases are being changed. Criminal law cases are being transformed as well. There is one law firm in Chicago that does exclusively red cup cases. Um, so if a high school student posts a picture of himself with a red cup, he risks being thrown out of school, not admitted to college, because it's assumed that there's beer in that red cup. And you know, even though you can't prove that based on a photo, he may lose some benefits as a result of that. Even probate law is changing because there are now concerns about what happens to your digital self after you die. And more and more people are making provisions. Who should get their password? Who should get access to their photos? If there's anything that's posted that might be the subject of intellectual property, who has a right to that? Um, you know, not to mention just... The, the entire transformation in uh, trials themselves. Uh, oh, the court processes? A, a judge actually friended the hot, sexy female defendant in his courtroom and told her how to plead on Facebook. You actually have an excerpt, I think, for us so about this. Back. Sure. The judicial system is a precarious institution in any society. The system requires a huge buy-in. People have to believe in the rules of the endeavor. The black robes, the call of oh yay, oh yay at the beginning of a courtroom session, the carved wood and marble of a typical courthouse, all aspects of the proceedings are designed to command respect for the institution. Who would agree to abide by the decision of a judge dressed in a Hawaiian shirt and a baseball cap? Jurors aren't supposed to be swayed by emotions unrelated to the case, such as their own past dealings with the defendant, or by anything they've read in the news media or any other source. They're not allowed to talk about the case with others so that they don't base their decision on the influence of a friend or relative rather than their own judgment. They can't visit the scene of the crime on their own or conduct their own investigations. Before social networks and other Internet developments, it was pretty easy to keep jurors in line. If a case garnered a lot of attention in the local press, a judge could order a change of venue so that the case was heard in another town. If the court was worried about outside influences, the jurors could be sequestered. But now court cases, like every other aspect of our lives, are being reshaped by search engines and social networks. Some people are so dependent on social networks, they can't make a decision about anything, 
whether to buy a certain car or break up with a boyfriend without doing Internet searches or running a poll of their friends. When faced with evidence in a sexual assault and abduction case, a juror actually posted the facts on her Facebook said, Facebook page and said, I don't know which way to go, so I'm holding a poll. Jurors' use of Facebook, Twitter, and Google have led to dozens of mistrials and overturned verdicts. In 2009, in a single court, 600 potential jurors were dismissed when prospective jurors mentioned they'd done research about the case and discussed it with others in the jury pool. With the click of a mouse or a simple search on their smartphone, jurors can find out the skinny on the lawyers, seek out past misdeeds of the defendant, make an assessment of the credibility of witnesses, or even use Google Earth to revisit the crime scene. But all of these actions violate a defendant's right to a fair trial. Web searches uncover information from outside of the courtroom where there's no chance for the defendant's lawyer to correct inaccuracies or cross-examine the individual who provided the information. Lori, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.